Stop! Sure you want the rest of it? Dirty Harry Welcome, listener, to Dirty Harry Minute. This is a podcast exclusively devoted to the 1971 Warner Brothers film, Dirty Harry, where we will analyse, scrutinise, and possibly ruin every minute of our favourite film. I'm John, one of your three co-hosts, and I will be joined on every on every episode with... Tim. And Trent. Thank you for coming, guys. Pleasure. Um, we've all been friends since late primary or elementary school, so we're not afraid to disagree uh, over opinions. Isn't that right, Tim? Yeah, I think so. I think we're all on board. We all like this film a lot. All in good nature, though. <laughs> um, what else can we say? We'll try to keep every episode between 15 to 20 minutes and upload uh, twice a week, schedules permitting. And each episode, we'll harangue a guest reviewer to join us with their thoughts. Um Tim, when did you first see Dirty Harry? What's your first memory of seeing the movie? 1995, 96. That predates me. Really? Yeah. Did I recommend it to you? Uh, No. I can't remember. (laughs) Good minds think alike. No, I saw it at school as part of an elective I took. Wow. So, 95, you just happened to come across it on TV or... No, no, no. I um, I think Trent actually recommended it to me. <laughs> ah. uh, Trent, I'd ask you where you and me first saw it, but I might leave that for future minutes. Sure. This is probably going to be a long introductory episode. It's the first podcast for all three of us, I think. Is that right, Tim? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, long-time listeners, first-time casters. Um, so, please be patient with us as we find our feet over the next few weeks. Um, please check out dirtyharryminute.com as we start to assemble show notes, links, bios, and info on where you can reach us or just to bring your, your own comments about Dirty Harry. Uh, please let us know too if, you, if you're a big fan of the film and you'd like to be a guest and you can try and pick your favourite block of minutes. In many ways, this is quintessentially American film, so it would be really nice to get some actual American guests or listeners. <laughs> Uh, and Tim, I think you were saying our wet, our wet dream would be to speak to someone old enough who actually saw it in the cinema at the time. Yeah, imagine that. Mm. Um, finally, our respects go to Alex Robinson and Pete the Retailer over at Star Wars Minute for setting the whole movie by minute enterprise up, and particularly for me anyway, Indiana Jones and Back to the Future Minutes, who provided me with many hours of great entertainment. So that's the housekeeping out of the way today. Uh, We're going to talk a little about the background of Dirty Harry um, before its production commenced back in April 1971. So, Tim, you got got your notes ready for the next episode? Yes. (laughs) Right here with me. Right here with me. (laughs) So, Tim, you've got your notes? Yes, right here with me. Oh. And who... What's your name? Tim. And who who are you? I'm a police officer. (laughs) Oh, great. All right, we're going to take a short break and we'll come back with the making of Dirty, Dirty Harry Minute. Minute. Sorry, I forgot the line. 
hope you guys have uh, had your LucasAid because we're about to have a, a big episode about the making of Dirty Harry up until production began in April 1971. You excited about this, Tim? Yeah, I'd like to learn some history. I've done a bit of um, research, of course, with Dr. Google, but also the biography of Clint Eastwood and a few other sources. We will begin now with our brief summation of its pre-production. Dirty Harry began life in late 1968 with a script called Dead Right. Written by husband and wife team Harry, Harry Julian and Rita Fink, best known for writing TV westerns like Have Gun, Will Travel, and a pre-wild bunch peck and par film Major Dundee. Dead Right was about a New York cop determined to stop a psychotic killer named Travis. And this script ended at that point with an anonymous police sniper shooting the killer in a dramatic shootout. And I can't think of a worse name for a killer than Travis. Can you, Trent? <laughs> uh, well, taxi driver. That's oh, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like they've merged the two scripts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Or there was that band called Travis, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What happened they, to them? <laughs> they weren't taken out for a dramatic shootout. Maybe they were. That's why we haven't heard from them for a while. <laughs> so we had this script floating around, and um, by early 1969, Universal had optioned Dead Right. Uh, Jennings Lang, formerly of MCA Talent Agency and a new then new executive at Universal, championed the husband and wife script and tried to develop it for Paul Newman who turned it down as too right-wing. Um, Jennings Lang would later go on to the famous, uh, producing the famous Airports series and Earthquakes, and my personal favourite, uh, Maxwell Smart's Nude Bomb. Um, do you think Paul Newman would have made a good Harry, Tim? I was, I was just trying to picture that in my head, and I think, I think it might have worked. Mm. It would have been different. Yeah, sure. But, but I like Paul Newman, so... <laughs> And he was pretty left-wing cause celebrity guy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I can imagine him turning it down, seeing it's a bit on the nose politically. Yeah, it's it's a bit hard to... I'm trying to think, like, pick, visualise him, mm. and I keep getting the image of the old man the, the with the white hair. Oh, it yeah. kind of resembles Clint Eastwood <laughs> <laughs> today, so... But does Paul Newman, like, what's his uh, his default f- smile? Doesn't he have a smirk or no? He's always just pleasant. Yeah, he's the always... one on the pasta. On the pasta? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the say cheese one was the best because his smile's even bigger on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Better than Uncle Ben. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, Paul Newman turned it down. And um, a few months later, April 69, Lang offered the script to uh, Robert Mitchum, who flatly refused, saying, and I quote, the less I like a script, the higher my price. Not that I'm a complete whore, understand. There are movies I won't do for any amount. I turn down Patton and Dirty Harry, movies that piss on the world. Um, Lang then turned uh, to inquire of Clint Eastwood, who was unfortunately just about to leave Europe to film Kelly's Heroes. And dead right, the script was then sold underneath, um, from beneath Lang's fingerprints, sold to ABC Television. Um... I don't know if it was their policy at film studios then not to have scripts that weren't red-lighted, Trent, straight away, or would they be willing to keep scripts that have been sitting there for six months? Well, yeah, yeah. Years. years. They still do that now. You hear about that, uh, you know, they've bought an option on something for however many years and, um, you know, they own it. So if another studio wants, you know, here's wind of this and they think, well, this thing's great, 
um, one of our executives has said, "This is brilliant. We want to buy it off you." Or it's going to be more yeah. underhanded though, because they don't want the other studio to think, "Oh shit, we've actually yeah. got some gold here." <laughs> well, in this case, they sold it to ABC Television, so. Ah, uh, and they were really big at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, from about 1968 till the mid 70s, they had a TV movie of the week thing, and you, you look at the the production schedule for what they did. I mean, you know, up until Netflix time, we always used to laugh at TV movies as being second rate. Uh, you know, with uh, actors who were perhaps past their prime or whatever. But at that time, they were making you know, really big quality stuff. Jewel, Steven Spielberg, that was one. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, ABC were huge with that. So, it wasn't such a bad thing. So, it wasn't a sign that they were just trying to get rid of this script, the bargain basement price. They thought, oh, God, we just need to offload this because it's... No. Well, I guess they probably saw it as a... And you can kind of see in one respect why they probably saw it as not, uh, you know, a theatrical thing. Yeah. Because it's a detective thing and, you know... Yeah. Police TV series is yeah. really a big thing at the time. I'm yeah. guessing the script at this time didn't have the naked teenager's body or something. Huh? Probably not. would have been a bit no. violent uh, to sell to TV. So, maybe that means at this stage it was a bit more generic. Mm, probably. Yeah, across town um, from Universal in June 1969, Warner Brothers slash Seven Arts had just suffered a $52 million loss and were bought out by the Kinney Company, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. Things weren't going too well for Warners at the time, with only the popular music label really keeping its parent afloat. Uh, $60 million worth of projects were cancelled once Kinney bought out the company, and obviously the studio was was in need of content to get things out. It's quite interesting about the music label keeping it afloat mm-hmm. because they, um, as was recently uh, in the media in the last four or five years, James Taylor taking Warner Brothers Records to court and he'd signed with them sometime in the 70s. And they were notorious, well, it's now out there mm-hmm. in the public eye, but they were notorious for uh, withholding royalties uh, paying the, the worst rate of royalties and right. because they had all these sub-labels and organisations that they owned but had under different names, they could uh, account for not being able to account for where certain funds were coming from. Is that proper accounting, accounting-wise, Tim? Cooking the books, I think yeah. is the term. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly, all, all this happened, I mean... The information's all online, which means it's probably true, of course. But yeah, okay. uh, yeah. Mr. Taylor didn't have much luck with. He might want to go back to the Beatles, I guess. He prefer <laughs> Alan Klein to Warner Brothers at the time. No. Yeah, well, who knows? But uh, yeah, it's it's quite interesting that that's what was keeping them afloat. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the unpaid royalties, yeah. <laughs> the musicians. <laughs> so Warner Brothers obviously desperate for uh, content. Um, I suppose like when any new management comes in, that $52 million they cancelled because, you know, wouldn't have their, if it succeeded and it didn't have their name on it, so they just got rid of it. They needed more to replace it. Um, they must have noticed at the time that cop pictures were pretty popular with Madigan, Coogan's Bluff, Frank Sinatra's The Detective and the very own Bullet. Um, so for that reason and others, Warner's brought Dead Right from, I can imagine, a, a grateful well, I don't know, from ABC Television. We were probably wondering what to do with the property. Um, it was then offered to Steve McQueen, who, like Newman before him, said no. 
and it was stuck in development hell, I would say, until April 1970 when Frank Sinatra agreed to star. And he was duly announced along with Irving Kirshner as director and James Kahn as killer, still called Travis. <laughs> now, this was before all the Godfathers, wasn't it, Trent? Was James Kahn, he would have been? Yeah. I'm unknown. trying to think what he was would have been known for at the time, if if at all. He was in something in the late 60s of note, wasn't he? Yeah, I can't remember. I suppose being a, the villain back then may not have been as glamorous as <laughs> maybe it is now. Yeah, was he in a TV show or something? John, do you think Frank Sinatra would have worked? No, I can't imagine <laughs> it. That said, I haven't seen the Tony Rome or... I haven't seen all of the detectives, so I don't know how he yeah. went as a as a detective. He could probably manage the uh, the one-liners pretty well, don't yeah. you think? He yeah. just wouldn't take him seriously with that big gun, the forty-four. <laughs> I don't know. Like, like citing, this is probably the worst thing to cite, but think of something like Spinal Tap. You know, the, the scene <laughs> with the limo driver. Yeah. No one understood pain like Frankie did. <laughs> and you just kind of um, think, there are people like that. These people you don't expect. As soon as Sinatra's came, name yeah. comes up, they sort of go, oh, yeah, you're like, I'm not fucking with that kind of thing. <laughs> I'm not di- dissing the, the leader of the, the board, the chairman <laughs> of the board. What about that scene with the DA's office after Kizar Stadium, though? Would uh, Frank have been, come on, and like throwing the wine glass at the DA or something? Get out, you know, your mug. Or I don't know. I don't think he could handle it. Yeah, it's a bit hard to picture. I could maybe see Steve McQueen in the role. Yeah. But... Mm. Just, yeah, again, very <laughs> different. Sinatra seems very wordy to me. Like, I can't see him reacting. Like, just, it's yeah. not much dialogue. You know, I can't imagine just staying He'd be silent. singing, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do sometimes wonder when you hear about people who, like all these actors who turn down the role, it's it's kind of, I suppose, for any production, interesting. I'd be I'd be interested to know for any production who the first person to sign on is. Yeah. Their, their reasoning behind it, because you... You, if you just talk about a, you know, a, a script with a cop and a psychotic killer, it's somewhat generic. And what what attaches some or what interests someone to actually yeah. sign on in the first place? Because yeah. you can kind of see it snowballing from there. If some a big name signs on first, yeah, and someone else goes, oh yeah, I, I want to work with that person. But it's kind of in, uh, yeah, it's one of those questions that we'll never <laughs> find the answer yeah. to. Like why why does someone sign on for? Uh, well, interestingly, yeah, Clint was the, the second choice after Newman because Jennings obviously had some sort of relationship with him and he, he's the last one to report for duty. They come back to the second choice, Clint, who finally says yes. Of course, the other thing that I'm forgetting about is probably money. Yeah. <laughs> Can turn a lot of heads. <laughs> after Sinatra agreed to star, a second draft was needed and the film was then reset uh, for Seattle and the killer, thankfully, was renamed Scorpio, uh, based a little more on the then-real-life Zodiac killer of Northern California, and the film was retitled Dirty Harry, the title we love and know today. The Zodiac killer, of course, was infamous for sending taunting letters to authorities with astrological symbols and cryptograms reportedly uh, revealing his identity. Um, elements of the then Gary Stephen Christ abduction were worked into the script. Uh, briefly, as follows, in 1968, a, k- a kidnapped girl was buried uh, in a shallow trench inside a fiberglass-reinforced box. The box was outfitted with an air pump, a battery-powered lamp, and water laced with sedatives. 
Two plastic pipes provided the girl with outside air. A $500,000 ransom was paid, and Chris duly gave an FBI operator on the switchboard vague directions to the burial site. The girl was rescued dehydrated, but thankfully otherwise unharmed, but after three days of being submerged. And Chris's fake name was Deacon, which may have been used as the name of the girl buried in the in the resulting Dirty Harry f- film, Mary Ann Deacon. Yeah. Mm. So obviously um, some real-life events that they thought could spice up the, the script, or maybe they were a bit lazy and thought, oh, chuck that in, that's topical, that get us a controversial buzz. And it's not clear uh, if John Milius helped insert these particular elements um, of... Uh, of the Zodiac Killer and the, the Christ abduction, but he was asked to work on the script around the middle of 1970. And uh, I've just got a quote here, his reflections later on. Milius, My contribution was a lot of guns, and making the cop the same as the killer, except with the badge. I was thinking in terms of Kurosawa's long gun detective films. I had the killer in the bus with the flamethrower. I tried to make him as outrageous as possible. I remember it was one of the first movies where I made them give me a gun. I had this gun in mind. I knew where this gun was. They said, we'll send for the gun. I said, no, you don't understand. If I don't have the gun today, when the gun comes here, I'll have to stop everything just to look at it for the whole day, and that will slow everything up. Didn't didn't realize he had such such a big input in the, yeah. as far as sort of adding those bits to the, to the script or... Do you think he tried to put a gun in Conan the um, Barbarian somehow? Or is there a gun or catapult <laughs> or anything? <laughs> well, maybe he was researching swords. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a bit unclear the hyperbole John Millis has given in subsequent interviews about what parts he added. He's obviously keen to yeah. to, to um, claim a lot of the iconic things. Obviously, the, the 44 Magnum is all, is all him, I think it's safe to say. It sort of sounds like he gave the film a bit more edge, mm. you know, from that basic idea and gave it a bit more identity mm. have you guys seen the documentary Milius it's on Netflix no it's Is quite that, good yeah it goes through about, yeah oh wow it's about two hours or so but I was just trying to remember if they go over that at all in it. I don't think they do so here you go, John. This is fresh information. Please, thank you. Masses. Is it on the Australian Australian Netflix? Australian Netflix, yeah, oh. yeah. Or it was two years ago. Whatever John Milius did, and I I'll concede he, he probably did a lot, that um, some of it was all wasted because in early November 1970, Frank Sinatra and Irvin Kirshner pulled out. Um, not to worry, it led the opportunity for a young Terence Malick to revise the script. Um, and his idea was to make Scorpio uh, a vigilante that killed wealthy criminals who were escaping justice. And that plot sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it, Tim? Because it later became part of Magnum Force. Oh, yes. Mm. Uh, About this time, Lee Marvin is thought to have been offered Sinatra's vacant lead role, but he turned it down. Um, Don't know if that's urban myth or or real. Definitely Burt Lancaster turned it down, strongly disagreeing with the end justifies the means morals. Next point of development, Frank Wells, Eastwood's then lawyer, was appointed vice president of Warners, um, at least the film department on the West Coast, and nudged the script back to Eastwood again, who, although he was halfway through Play Misty for me, um, coincidentally at Universal with with Jennings Lang, 
Um, he agreed. Um, Two Mules for Sister Sarah and Kelly's Hero just been released in June 1970. And Clint was happy to agree. Uh, to agree. And I think he would have accepted any movie, uh, any role at this time, Tim, because his last few, as you see those movies quoted and um, Paint Your Wagon, they'd all been ensemble pieces. So mm-hmm. I reckon he, he was glad, glad to hen, you know, be in a film that was just him as the lead role and an iconic one at that with a bit of um, gravitas. But Eastwood said, I'll only accept the role that, you, that I was offered a year and a half ago if you revert to the original Dead Right script as much as possible, um, save for removing the police sniper resolution of the, the killer at the end, because he reflected, quote, this is losing the plot of the whole story of the guy chasing the killer down. It's becoming an extravaganza. Eastwood also insisted upon his mentor, Don Siegel, being brought in as director, and Siegel, in turn, insisted upon Dean Reisner to polish the script and make something coherent from all the versions of the script that were floating around. So it kind of sounds like maybe Clint and Milius came up with a lot of the the characters' traits and identity. Yeah, that, that could be the case. With Don Siegel also. Terence Malick would have been pretty young, wouldn't he? Did he does he have a script writing... Uh, background apart from his movies that he directed. I'm just like trying to remember. Have a look. Nothing I know of. I, I feel like he worked on something else because I mean, most of his work in between these massive hiatuses is um, <laughs> commercials and things like that. Oh. I think it's because um, when it was Badlands, that was '73. Yeah, not really. Like the, yeah, he did the one film Lantern Mills before Dirty Harry. Then Dirty Harry, Drive, he said, Deadhead, Miles, Pocket Money, they're all written by him. Drive, he said, the Nicholson one. Yeah. That's boring. Yeah, yeah, there's that one. But yeah, not really. The, you know, but perhaps uh, his projects showed promise or something. The, all the unreleased, unrealized gems. <laughs> Eastwood's had a number of those people early in their career that have worked with him. Him, Cimino and Cimino and Malik and who mm. else? But yeah, Malik's always remained uncredited on the script. So Don Siegel, Tim, do you have... I've never really seen many of his movies outside of the Clint ones. Yeah, I think I watched one or two after uh, Dirty Harry and I found them okay, nothing nothing that amazing. Uh, I've been meaning to check out Charlie Varick just because it's a few years later and it's got Andy Robinson in it and I know... Tarantino drool over that. Don't, isn't that a bit of a cult movie, Charlie Varick, or whatever? The, uh, yeah. yeah, the last of the independent script. I know it has a reputation with them, and I think your friend De Toro as well. Um, a little background on Don Siegel. He's been called one of the best B-grade movie makers in Hollywood, um, I suppose also alongside Roger Corman. He began his career preparing montages for Warner Brothers, uh, most significantly doing the montage of Casablanca, and he won an Oscar for a short in World War II. He's been described as, quote, a journeyman director who gradually earned a reputation for doing the most with the littlest material. He was used to working within tight budgets. He shot quickly and efficiently, often at night, and he was famous for acquiring very few takes. Now, considering the, the relatively long gestation period up to the point of Dirty Harry, I think it was pretty important that he get the ball rolling. And um, like I said, he was quickly becoming Clint's mentor. In many ways, they shared many similarities. Siegel was a 
a lowbrow man making, you know, violent B-grade pictures that would sort of later become cult classics or A-pictures. And Clint was a was a refugee originally from television that made a name himself with these new um, spaghetti westerns. And I've got another great quote about Siegel's career, which I think also illuminates uh, Dirty Harry. It goes, Siegel's films are about people rather than events. Many of them concern loners or psychopaths. Comic and romantic elements in Siegel's films are rare and usually unconvincing. By and large, his is a man's world, even if Siegel allowed women to hit back in The Beguiled. But you can expect most Siegel films to bear an adult certificate and be tough and uncompromising. His worlds are where nice guys finish last, or, at very best, hanging on by the skin of their teeth. Siegel's murderers and vigilantes are creatures of the imagination. In them, he encourages us to see mirrored for our own images for violence and anarchy. When, thy, when they die, when they die, it is us, in effect, for our sins. Scorpio is his most malevolent creation. I think that sums up pretty well a man's world. Tim, Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, I disagree there's a bit of comedy in Dirty Harry. <laughs> um, romance is very threadbare. But, um, yeah. So, once again, I haven't seen many Seagull films apart from the Clint ones, but I'll give you a brief list. There's 1954's Riot in Cell Block 11, which I think is a bit of a classic now. Um, supposed to be realistic, um, well-staged critique of the prison system. I've not seen it. I will check it out. I do, however, like Jailhouse Rock, but that's a different type of prison film. <laughs> um, 1955, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, a mere... A uh, year and a half later, which that was fantastic. You've seen it, yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant! I, I actually, I've never seen the 1978 remake with Donald Sutherland. Oh, yeah, nor have I. That one, uh, yeah, I saw it at the cinema ages ago. It was yeah, Kevin McCarthy's the star. He was really good. And it's a Cold War type thing, is it? Where invasion of unknown the uh, plants or something? Triffids? What are yeah, they? Yeah, I. Oh, God. I was a teenager when I saw it. I, oh, yeah. If there was a Cold War element to it, I don't think I saw yeah, oh, I yeah. see the connection that. in that. It was about infiltration of... Um, have you seen it, Tim? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Is yeah. it, does, is it, does it originate from plants or something that come and then they take over the personalities of people like communist agents or something? I just remember the sort of paranoia element. Yeah. yeah. About the neighbours turning in neighbours and stuff. Yeah, I think so. Like that great uh, the Monsters are due on Maple Street Twilight Zone. But yeah, I, I know it's it's a big reputation. <coughs> was that made as a big film, though, Trent? I think so, and yeah. Just... It wasn't a... I don't think there's a massive studio behind it. I think it was Allied Artists or one of those small oh, right. ones. Um, a few years later, he had The Lineup, which 1958's The Lineup with Ali, what, Eli Wallach, which yeah. I found <laughs> duty-bound to watch because Dirty Harry Connections. It was written by Sterling Sullivan, who did, did, a, remake, did a, a screen version of um, The Enforcer. And obviously, it was also set in San Francisco. It's got a lot of East Coast actors pretending they're on the West Coast. So that reminded me a bit of, well, in my mind, Harry Gardino. Um, they go up a street that looks like Hot Mary's. And there's a line where one one of the cops says, Drive the car, Dipso, which reminded me of Go Get Some Air <laughs> Fatso. Um, next was 1964 The Killers, which. Have you seen that, Trent? That's a good I've never movie. actually seen that, no. I think it was originally a TV movie that they gave a theatrical release. Yeah. And Lee Marvin's in that. Um, basically, it's two killers 
uh, hired to murder a man and they're just really bowled over by how the guys accepted his death and he knew it was coming. And so they decide to turn back their investigation on the um, the, the guy that ordered the hit, uh, who's played by Ronald Reagan in one of his last screen, one, one of his last screen roles. Um, so it's about the, the killers um, becoming the investigators, um, which is pretty good. Um, 1968, Madigan, which... Um, I've still wanted to track down. Have you seen Madigan? No, no. I've always wanted to as well. I see um, on IMDb there's a like a maybe a video trailer made in the 80s or something and they use very Harry-like language, Tim. They say their hunting ground is New York City and their game is a vicious killer. Oh, right. So, Got to find that. Trying to make it, yeah, what's the word? retrofit it as, as a Harry-type film. But I, I do want to check it out. Um, 1968, Don Siegel, Clint Eastwood, Coogan's Bluff, of course, I've seen many times. Um, I never tire of watching it. He plays a cop from Arizona who has to go to New York to bring back a, a criminal, a crime for a trial. And he's out of his element, sort of like Harry is, but he's he's from Arizona. He's got the same brown suit type <laughs> that you see later in the film when Harry wears on the trestle. And it stars a young, it stars Albert Popwell as well. And some similarities with Dirty Harry. It pokes fun at sort of the due process, legal procedures and sociology. And there's one telling scene where there's a female case manager in the police office and, like, a bad delinquent punches her and and she sort of accepts it. And Clint goes over and beats the hell out of him, I think. Um, But she's trained to, you know, he has to be treated softly. He's he's got problems, social problems. Um, So that's a little bit of Siegel's work. Um, I wonder what they would have thought Trent in the trades when it was announced in December or late 1970 that Clint and Don were making this movie together. Mm. Would have people thought, well, he's made movies with, with Clint before, but this is, you know, relatively, relatively high profile, high, high profile movie. Why have they got what, Siegel? The, um, what, how successful was Coogan's Bluff? Um, I think it was moderately successful, like yeah. definitely profitable, maybe Maybe not made, a breakout maybe three times. When was the Beguiled? Was that after? That was 71, yeah. Oh, okay. Came out the month they started in production of Dirty Harry. Yeah. If I was alive then, it would have been a good Christmas present for me to hear <laughs> that there's this cop but, movie. But would you have had the passion for it before it existed? Mm. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, would I have thought it's just going to be Coogan's Bluff 2? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, it would have been harder to see um, Siegel's background movies in those days. It wouldn't, mm. Yeah, unless you're a real cinephile. So, Dean Reisner, we mentioned before, Siegel brought him in to make um, a few revisions, which he did, spending two weeks. He obviously had done some treatments for Play Misty for me, and interestingly enough, a number of Rawhide episodes that Clint may have remembered, been reminded, he may have been remembered uh, for. And... The first thing they decided was to change location to San Francisco. Now, the urban myth is that it was all happenstance. Both Clint and Siegel were watching uh, a football game of the 49ers playing their last game at Kizar Stadium. Do you think that's true, Tim? They're apparently watching the same replay on TV. And well, we should set it here. This would be. Well, I'm wondering good was the idea to sort of ape the Zodiac Killer an idea that came before this or later because wouldn't that I would have thought that had the closer connection to San Francisco and would have driven the the idea to uh, but maybe they added that idea later on yeah 
I don't know how attuned Clint is to pop cultural events at the time. <laughs> yeah. And um, the but, Zodiac, the Zodiac thing would that would have made huge um, newspaper headings all over the country. Yeah. Uh, or by seventy one. Thought so, but who knows? Back then, back then, back then, may, uh, you know, news may not have been wi- as widespread or accessible as it is today. So. Um. So yeah, big change there to San Francisco from Seattle. <laughs> Um, other big changes they made, they made Dirty Harry younger because in the original Dead Right treatments, um, it suggested the Callahan was older and uh, closer to retirement and they made him not so smart arsey because, you know, he was worried he'd lose his pension. Um, <laughs> so they made him younger so he could be a bit more of a smart aleck. And also they inserted the school bus scene that we know today, um, originally the ending the sniper, where the, the, it was to be uh, an air cha- airplane hijacking scene, which we might know they later resurfaced for Magnum Force. Um, Robert Daly, uh, who was con- in control of Clint's Mel Paso company, negotiated the cast and put the crew together for Clint. And back on board, the company payroll was Glenn Wright, who was the costume designer. Clint had been using since Rawhide, who selected Callahan's distinctive brown and yellow checkered jacket. Um, filming finally was ready to begin in April 1971. Uh, it was an eight-week shoot. The Beguiled was released that month, um, and Clint finally finished his post-production duties, so was ready to begin filming. And I love The Beguiled. Have you seen that, Trent? Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I watched that recently, actually. Oh, yeah. What would you think? It was, wasn't bad. I haven't seen the remake. How's oh, that? Yeah. yeah. It was pretty lacklustre. <laughs> okay. Colin Farrell. I remember watching that in year 11, um, coming home from my first shift at uh, Hungry Jack's, <laughs> and it was on TV. Um, Trent, if you'll, let, if you'll let me indulge myself, there are some similarities with Dirty Harry. Yeah. Are you ready to hear them? Yeah. Tell me if I'm pulling at straws. <laughs> All right. Number one, they're both directed by Don Siegel and have Clint and yeah. music provided by Lalo. Tick. Both movies start with a montage of sorts. Um, the Beguiled starts with stills of like cavalry in the Civil War and flashes of fake sort of gunfire. And obviously we know Dirty Harry starts with the, um, the Roll of Honor. Um, in The Beguiled, Clint, when he's injured, has a black nurse looking after him. In Dirty Harry, we have Black Doctor Steve. <laughs> Fair, yeah. Um, there's brackish water in the first five minutes of the film. <laughs> That's a stretch. Um, it's the seventies. Like yeah. even the water here, when yeah. you turn on the tap, would be brown. <laughs> um, the main heroes are both injured to the leg. Um, the blood marks on Clint's face after he's injured look quite the same, like three little dots. Um, <laughs> Both have marksmen. Clint plays a sniper sort of in The Beguiled when we find him. Well, that's where he was in the tree when he falls down. Um, there's a lot of ADR, which I think maybe there's more ADR in The Beguiled and Clint's really whispery when he's talking to the girls trying to seduce them. All right, that can be him in any movie, yeah? <laughs> um, nine, he actually says, you've got to ask yourself. Not. He says, you've got to ask yourself, what does a woman, what does the you know headmasters have you all attending to me instead of you've got to ask yourself um there's a music cue in the kitchen at the end of the beguile that sounds eerily similar to the 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 cue in Kizar stadium where the helicopter shot pulls back and 11 a point of difference dirty harry dances around the n-word 
Whereas in The Beguile, it's said quite a few times by the black character and by other characters. Um, so maybe Clint had them all on his mind uh, when he came to production April 1971, which was very big for a film. It had car stunts, aerial shots, and a lot of nighttime shooting on location, which obviously was said before Siegel was quite um, familiar with and known for. And it all went off pretty smoothly. Um they had to send the peacenik Andy Robinson for training. You may have read Tim to learn how to fire the the mm-hmm. gun without blinking, like a like a girl. I'm sure Seagull would have said. <laughs> and that's about it. You think there's anything we missed out, Trent? Nothing I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> well done, John. Research yes. is is very great. I, l- I learned a few things. Yes. Well, that's a little. That's everything about the pre-production of the film that we could find out. If anyone's got any other interesting tidbits, please go to dirtyharryminute.com. We'll catch you next time. Dirty Harry, Harry Minute. Minute. Dirty, 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 dirty Harry. Dirty.